So this morning we're just looking at Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 26 through verse 38. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains And even as we come to this passage this morning, some challenging things here. And yet we pray that as your word goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, that your word would find in each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will challenge our faith and that will bring about great and glorious fruit for your glory. We pray, Lord, for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What is the condition of your faith? Is your faith too rigid to be stretched beyond the status quo? That is, is there kind of a a tipping point in your faith at which you would say to yourself, okay, enough is enough. I can believe this, but I can't believe that. Or... Is your faith more flexible and even eager to stretch to limits that you never thought possible? Consider in your hearts these questions. Because our passage this morning reveals some things that for many are very hard to swallow. Things that are hard to believe because they go against the grain of human reason and understanding. 
In fact, we might say that these are impossible. And yet we find them here revealed to us in the pages of God's Word, the Bible. What are we to do? How much are you willing to believe? Well, sadly, there are many who come to this point and come to these passages and even many who would claim the name of Jesus and they would say, this is impossible. There must be some other explanation, some allegorical or or figurative meaning that we need to apply here because these things certainly could not have happened the way that Luke records them here. I can believe in Jesus as the prophet and, and as a teacher of God. And I can believe in, in His teaching of, in the Sermon on the Mount. But when it comes to things like the incarnation and the virgin birth and the resurrection of the dead, I just can't buy it. You hear people, again, people who claim the name of Christ, making these kinds of statements. Because their faith calling it a faith, is rigidly bound by the finite limits of human reason, which really makes it not much of a faith at all. So I'd like to challenge you this morning, and and especially if you would find yourselves in, in this rigid faith dilemma, to consider the possibility of an impossible faith. To humble yourselves before the one true living God, who is the God of the impossible. And to submit yourselves to His truth, as He's revealed it to us in this passage. Because if you step out in faith, believing by the power of the Holy Spirit, these impossible truths that we're going to consider this morning, I guarantee... It will change your life, both now and forever. And so we begin first with this. It's hard to believe that the great God of the universe, the one who created all things out of nothing, would so consider the lowly and undeserving. And we see the impossibility of this truth expressed in a few different ways here. First, in the lowly place that God chooses to bring news of this great coming event. In a small, out-of-the-way town, in the region of Galilee, some 91 miles north of, of Jerusalem. And you'd think that if God was going to announce the coming of the long-awaited Messiah, right, the anointed king who would come to sit upon the throne of his father David, that certainly God would make this announcement in the holy city of Jerusalem. After all, the the birth of John the Baptist, which uh, uh, is uh, foretold before this, was announced to his father Zacharias. Not only was Zacharias in Jerusalem, the holy city, but he was actually there in the very temple itself, the very place where God chose to set his name and to be the presence of, his presence in the midst of his people. Certainly, if the birth of the forerunner 
was announced in such a, a prominent place? Well, wouldn't we expect that the birth of the Messiah would also be announced in a, in a prominent place? But no. Again, this certainly would have been most reasonable and most easy to believe. But no. We're quickly whisked away from the glory of the holy place and the temple in, in Jerusalem. And we're taken to a small city in Galilee, to a town called Nazareth. A place never mentioned in the Old Testament. An out of the way, no place. With no great reputation other than the common insult of the day, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But contrary to all reason and expectation, God considers the lowly. Do you believe it? Well, hang on, because it only gets more challenging from here. Because we might say, okay, so, so God wants to avoid all the, the glitz and the glamour of Jerusalem. And, and He decides to reveal this great event in, in some small town in the middle of nowhere. Right? That's not too much of a stretch. But to whom will God send His messenger to reveal this great message? Now again, the announcement of the forerunner, the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist, was, was made to a priest. But here we have the announcement about the Messiah. Right? The, the anointed king. And it was promised long ago that there was great expectation among the people that this Messiah would come. Surely God would make this announcement to some noble prince or a governor, right? No. Again, the announcement is made to the unexpected. To a lowly young girl. Well, at least... Okay, she's going to be a young girl. At least she's going to be, she's going to be a princess, right? She's a princess who just happens to be passing through this little dinky town. No. This girl, Mary, appears to be a, a native of the town of, of Nazareth. And she's engaged to, to Joseph, who is the town carpenter. Now it's true, as it's noted here in this passage, that Joseph was of the descendants of David. But of course at this point, even as Mary was also uh, in the lineage of David, and then we have the genealogies of Matthew, which gives Mary, more Mary's line, and, and um, or Luke gives Mary's line, Matthew gives uh, the line of Joseph, the legal line. But of course there are thousands of descendants of David at this time, right? There are, there are a dime a dozen. And yet there hadn't been one of them to sit on the throne as king for almost 500 years now. But look how Gabriel addresses Mary. He says, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Well, okay, she's... Certainly she's just no ordinary girl then. Right? Certainly she was, she was pure, not only, not only sexually, but also spiritually. Perhaps she was even without sin. 
Certainly she was full of grace and, and goodness. Even to such an extent that she would be able to freely bestow upon others. Certainly she had done something to gain God's attention and favor in order to receive such a a wonderful blessing as this, right? No. Despite the false dogma of Roman Catholicism and a certain prayer that begins, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. The biblical truth, the truth that we find in the actual scriptures, is that Mary was just an ordinary girl. She was born under the curse of sin, even as we are. She wasn't a dispenser of grace. She was a sinner in need of grace. She wasn't a person to be worshipped or prayed to, but one who worshipped and prayed to the one true living God, seeking His salvation. And her low condition is confirmed here in in several ways. First, Gabriel, as he greets Mary, was simply greeting her with God's blessing. Right? He wasn't bowing down. He wasn't worshiping or revering her. He's just greeting her with a blessing from the Lord. And second, Mary was favored not because of her own purity or anything that she herself had done, but because the Lord was graciously with her. The verb favored here is is a passive participle. Telling us that Mary didn't possess grace on her own, but she received it from God. And in 3rd verse 29, we see that Mary was greatly troubled by this greeting, likely because she acknowledged that as a sinner in need of God's mercy, she certainly wasn't worthy of such an accolade. It was surprising to her because of her low position before God. And then forth in verse 30, Gabriel again reassures her that the grace and mercy of God has been showered down upon her. And so again, contrary to all human reason and expectation, God considers this lowly handmaid and blesses her with grace and mercy that's not her own. Do you believe it? Well, there's still more. For not only does the Lord consider this lowly, ordinary girl in this unknown place, but so great is His grace and compassion that the Lord is going to reveal to Mary His plan of redemption and reconciliation for lowly, rebellious, sinful, and undeserving mankind including each and every one of us here. In verse 31, Gabriel informs Mary that she'll conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Jesus. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, when the angel Gabriel appears to Joseph to inform him of these things, well, he then defines for Joseph what this name Jesus means. Matthew 1 verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the uh, Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. The Lord saves. 
Jesus means salvation. Well, how is he going to save his people from their sins? Now, I confess that this is really, in this whole passage, this is one of the hardest things to grab hold of and believe. This Jesus would save sinners by freely and willingly suffering for us. That he'd offer his life as the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. That he who knew no sin would become sin on our behalf, enduring even the wrath and curse of God for our sins. The very punishment that only we deserved, Jesus endured when he suffered and died on the cross. And he'd do this not for those who were good, Not for those who were deserving. Not for those who expressed love toward God. No, He did this for His enemies. He did this for those who hated Him and despised Him. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for who? Not the godly, but the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you believe that? Can you believe that Jesus Christ actually died for your sins. That He alone paid the penalty that you and I both deserve. Can you believe it? I confess, sometimes I struggle and I I marvel at this. Especially when I consider my own sinfulness and unworthiness. And of course, this even after my conversion to Christ and, and as a minister of the Gospel. Christ died for me. And though it seems impossible and and beyond all human reason and understanding, by the grace and mercy of God, I cling to this great truth with every fiber of my being. How about you? Are you able to grab hold of this great truth in faith? I pray it so. I pray it so to the glory of God alone. But we aren't done yet. The impossibilities keep stacking up. Beginning with God's grace and mercy and considering the lowly undeserving sinner, now to the great mystery of the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. It's hard to believe That the God of all creation became a man to save us from our sins and eternal condemnation. But that's exactly what Gabriel is revealing to Mary here. Verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then in verse 35, that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Well, here is set forth the great and mysterious truth of the incarnation. God taking on flesh and becoming a man. Note here these impossible, unbelievable things that the angel Gabriel tells Mary about this son that she will bear. He will be great. The angel told Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, that John would be great before the Lord. But this Jesus, who was to be born to Mary, would be great. No qualification, no limitation. He would be great. Well, this is a testimony to Jesus' divine nature. Because we know that God alone is great. The psalmist sings in Psalm 86, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. God alone is great. And Jesus would be fully God. Secondly, we see this confirmed in the fact that He'll be the Son of Most High, the eternal Son of God. And this is a a truth prophesied about in in Psalm uh, 2, Psalm 2 verse 7. The Lord says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. God's own Son would be the anointed Messiah and King who would save His people from their sins. This son was Jesus, who was confirmed to be the Son of God, first by God's own declaration, both at at His baptism and then again on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Lord, the voice from heaven, says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Apostle Paul testifies that this Jesus Christ, our Lord, Romans 1 verse 4, declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the truth. But He'd also be the Son of David. He would be an anointed king who would reign over an eternal kingdom. And as a sovereign king, He'd conquer the great enemies of Satan, sin, and death in order to redeem His people and to save them from their sins. Even now He reigns over all things for the benefit of His beloved people, the church. And He'll one day come again in glory, revealing Himself to all the earth, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now as hard as it may be to believe, this is indeed the truth. And we know it's the truth, Because God has revealed it to us in His Word. Not only here in in Luke's Gospel, but it was also prophesied about hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. And so consider the parallels between what Gabriel is telling Mary here and what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
It's all there. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Divine Son of God and the Eternal King who sits upon David's throne forever. Gabriel is now telling Mary that the time has come for God to accomplish this very thing. Now this revelation also emphasizes the fact that though Jesus was the divine only begotten Son of God, so that He was fully God, but again, He'd also be the Son of Man, so fully human. Now how is this possible? Two natures, human and divine, existing together in one person, and what's called in, in theology as the hypostatic union. How is this possible? Again, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, I, I don't know. It's one of the great and awesome mysteries that we find in the Scriptures. But just because it's a mystery and we don't understand it, doesn't mean it isn't true, and doesn't mean that we should be, it should be denied as an article of faith. But what we do know is that God has revealed this truth. And there's too much at stake if we would deny the coexistent divinity and humanity of the God-man Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus wasn't fully human, well then friends, we have no sufficient sacrifice for our sins. See, because it was man who sinned in the garden. So it was man who must pay the ultimate penalty. And without the humanity of Christ, we have no payment for our sins. We have no sympathetic high priest who is able to minister to us in our hour of need. And if Jesus wasn't fully divine, well then he wouldn't have been able to endure the wrath and curse of God for our sins. And he wouldn't have been able to secure the victory over death by his resurrection. The incarnation is an essential truth that we ought not to easily discard. Do you believe it? Well, there's more. Upon hearing all this, Mary asks a very pertinent question in verse 34. She says, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. Now we'll say at the start that this is different from the actual unbelief of Zacharias. Again, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. In verse 18, earlier, when the angel appeared to Zacharias and told him that a son would be born to him and his barren wife, Zacharias asked, well, how shall I know this? Zacharias wanted a sign to prove what Gabriel said was true. But Mary here, she doesn't ask for a sign. She doesn't question the, the truth of what Gabriel's told her. She just wants to know how this truth is going to come about since she's never been intimate with a man. It was an honest question, and the answer is unbelievable. Verse 35 the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And so Mary would have a son. But this son wasn't going to be born through ordinary generation. 
That is, the, through the ordinary intimate relationship between a, a, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, that he'd be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously fertilizing the seed in her womb. Jesus would be the fruit of a virgin birth. Now, like the incarnation, the virgin birth is a great mystery, and we don't fully understand how it was even possible. But like the incarnation, the virgin birth is also an essential article of faith. Because if we deny the virgin birth, then we're faced with yet another dilemma. Either Mary is an immoral person and has conceived through an illicit relationship, or Luke is simply making this all up and he's lying. The account is fake. Or maybe it's a combination of both. Friends, as difficult to grasp as it may be, the truth is none of the above. Mary was chaste. Though she was engaged to be married, she had no relations with her husband Joseph until after Jesus was born. And Matthew makes that clear in his gospel account. And we have Luke's earlier testimony that he had reported these events after investigating them carefully. And as a physician, we know Luke was a, was a physician. And, and certainly this event in particular, would have, he would have been, just sparked his keen interest. And so the truth and reliability of the scriptures is at stake. If we were to disregard these impossibilities we deny the virgin birth, if we also when then would deny the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've already established is, is essential for our salvation and our hope. It would also deny His perfect holiness. Noting here especially that Gabriel says that it's because of the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would be the Holy One. Such holiness didn't come from a sinless mother as some falsely believe. As we noted, Mary was born a sinner, like the rest of us. But Jesus was spared this sin because the Most High God was His Father. But Jesus just couldn't come into the world as God. right? He had to become a man. And the seed in Mary's womb provided the flesh. And so to deny the virgin birth is also then a denial of the humanity of Jesus. See, there was no other way for it to happen. This is how God desired to accomplish it. And in fact, this too was prophesied about hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7 verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus is the Emmanuel. God with us. Not only among us as a spirit, but with us in the flesh. He shares our aches and our pains, our sufferings and afflictions, our temptations and struggles yet without sin. Beloved of God, this is impossible. It's unheard of. It's it's again beyond the finite comprehension of our minds. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the virgin birth? There's one final unbelievable point here. And really, it's the summary of everything that we've already considered. 
You see, though Mary didn't seek and didn't ask for a sign, Gabriel reveals a sign to her to confirm these things. And the sign itself is impossible. It says in verse 36, Your relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age. She who was barren is now six months pregnant. It's impossible. It's impossible not just because of her barrenness, the fact that she could never have children, it was physically impossible, but but now because of her old age. She was well advanced in years, well beyond childbearing age. It would be physically impossible. And yet Gabriel tells Mary that Elizabeth was with child. How can this be? How can the impossible be possible? Well, Gabriel continues with the final impossible truth. In verse 37, For with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing. Not a zilch. Zero. Absolutely, positively, nothing will be impossible with God. Can you believe that? No situation that we may find ourselves in is beyond God's control it's, or is out of reach of His grace, mercy, and compassion. There's no task so hard that God is unable to give the strength necessary to achieve it. There's no wound too deep that God cannot heal. There's no burden so great that He can't lift off your shoulders. There's no affliction so severe that He can't ease it with His all-sufficient grace. There's no grief so intense that He wouldn't comfort it. There's no offense so great, no sin so bad, that God won't forgive and cleanse through the shed blood of Jesus Christ His Son. There's no heart that is so cold and dead in sin and transgression that He can't awaken and bring to newness of life. Beloved of God, nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe it? Mary did. And though she didn't understand it all, even though it was seemingly impossible, even though she knew it would be perceived as scandalous, even though she knew not only her marriage and reputation, but also her life could be in danger, she believed. She believed the message God had sent. She believed and then submitted herself to God's revealed purpose and plan for her life. Verse 38, Behold, the maidservant, Jesus responds, The maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I submit my life to your word, to your truth. Mary's is a faith stretched to great and glorious lengths. Beloved of God, what's the condition of your faith? Is it rigid and unwilling to grow? Or is it ready to be stretched beyond what you could possibly imagine? I challenge you again to consider the possibility of an impossible faith. 
stepping out in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, believing these impossible truths that God pours out His grace on lowly undeserving sinners such as we are. And that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, to be born of a virgin, and to suffer and die on the cross for your sins, and to be raised again on the third day. I challenge you to humble yourself before the one true living God, And confess and turn away from your sin. I challenge you to submit yourself to the truth of His Word. And believe with all your heart that nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, if you believe on Christ, and if you believe these truths, then your life will most certainly be changed, both now and forever. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for your word and this challenge. What a great comfort it is. There's much here that we just can't even wrap our minds around. And yet you reveal it here clearly and plainly for us. And yet, we, though we don't understand, we pray that you would help our unbelief. And that we would trust your word, the truth that is revealed to us. Because we know that in trusting you, we will not be disappointed. Not now in this life, and certainly not in all eternity. Father, these impossible truths, yet what a great comfort they are to us knowing that You sent Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be that once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins, that He had to be both God and man. How is that going to happen? You found a way. It's impossible to us, but not with You. You've made the impossible possible. And we rejoice and give thanks because of that. Because of the salvation that we enjoy. And what, a, what an impossible realization that is. That Jesus Christ, your own beloved Son, the one who was there in the beginning, creating all things by the word of His power, all things being created through Him and for Him, laid down His life for the wretched sinners that we are. Undeserving, rebellious, Wicked in unbelief. And yet Christ Jesus died for us. Well, that's probably the the hardest thing. The hardest impossibility for us to believe. And yet it's true. As you have revealed in your word. And we pray that your spirit would impress that truth upon us. And that you would help to grow our faith. To stretch it beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. Acknowledging that you are truly the God of the impossible. And so we rejoice and give thanks, and especially as we're, our minds and hearts and many around the world are thinking about these things, or at least in a very superficial way, well, may we grab hold of them more deeply and see the awesomeness of it all and how it all ultimately brings glory to your holy name. 
And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for these things. We pray that your spirit would truly impress these things upon our hearts, stretching and growing our faith, all for your glory, honor, and praise. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.